As we just heard before the news, Canada has signed off on that contract to buy a fleet of F-35 jet fighters. This is a fleet that will replace the aging CF-18s. And we heard from Defence Minister Anita Anand earlier today from uh, about this purchase and about the $19 billion that uh, is the price tag that is going to come with this purchase. We'll start seeing some of these jets delivered in 2026. And then from that point on, we will see some of the squadrons getting these, although it's unclear exactly what year they will all be fully operational. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this is Randall Garrison, the NDP deputy critic for National Defense. Randall, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. No problem, Jill. What are Well, thank you again so much. What are your concerns uh, in your role as deputy critic? What are your concerns about this purchase and today's announcement? Well, I think there's two things. One is that it's taken so long to actually uh, get a contract to purchase jets, which are desperately needed by the Canadian forces. And the second is the fact that the Liberals weren't able to negotiate any job guarantees uh, out of this big purchase. So uh, we have the example of Brazil, who bought um, F-35s, or sorry, did not buy F-35s, bought the Gripen fighters, and they're actually having them produced in Brazil. And so we've argued all along that there should have been uh, very tough negotiations to have some of the manufacturing done here in Canada if other countries were, were able to do this. Have you been able to put numbers together, or do you know what the numbers look like, though, as far as the price and what manufacturing in Canada might do to the overall price tag? Well, certainly in the in the case of Brazil, it didn't increase the price at all from everything that we can see. So um, it's hard to tell because we get uh, seven billion for sixteen fighters and seventy seven billion for eighty eight fighters, and the, the the parameters keep changing. What we know is that we're we're paying a premium price, and we're not getting the industrial benefits that we could have gotten out of some tough negotiations here. Uh, even if we had decided perhaps in the at an earlier date to go ahead with this purchase, and I also played a bit of the comments from Justin Trudeau from 2015 where he talked about the fact that purchasing these jets for Canadians would be a nightmare. Uh, the price, obviously, not a big surprise. The price today is a lot higher than it would have been back then. Do you think there could have been a better deal then as well, negotiating perhaps a better price and also putting that clause in there or making it so more components or more parts are manufactured in Canada. Oh, absolutely. And again, I cite the example of Brazil, who placed their order for their new fighter jets in 2014 and took their first deliveries uh, last month. And so uh, they paid far less for the Gripens than we're paying for the F-35s. Part of that is the fact that they uh, signed a contract nearly eight years ago when we could have done the same thing. Uh, and I, I guess I thought when the Liberals said in the in the 20. 15 campaign that we weren't going to buy the F-35s, that they were going to negotiate hard to buy a different fighter jet. But they didn't. They appeared to just gone ahead with what the Conservatives had put on the table almost a decade ago. Right. And, and that's being pointed out quite a lot today, isn't it? That it wasn't a pivot, to, like you're saying, to something else or a, this is not a good plan. Here's why. Here's what we're going to do instead. It just seemed like more of a stall. Yeah, it was just a delay, which was very costly. And, and you know, at the time we thought, as I said, either a different fighter jet or more industrial benefits for Canadians. You know, we've got a strong aerospace industry in, in Montreal and Winnipeg where lots of the parts for the fighter planes uh, could be produced and manufactured, and we don't appear to have any of those kind of guarantees in this agreement at all. Where it's the same thing that was on the table, again, a decade ago.
there was some language in the announcement. I mean, it wasn't overly specific, but the language in the announcement did say that these were, and the, the defense minister mentioned these are jets built by Lockheed Martin, uh, that there are other contractors in different countries that will be helping out or, or, or responsible for some components, and that includes Canada. But did you get any impression or any idea what that including Canada looks like? Well, certainly uh, there's a, a large degree of integration in the aerospace industry in North America. And so by chance, I guess I would say, some of the parts may be made in Canada. But the, the point that I'm making today is that there's no guarantee. There's nothing in this contract that guarantees that any of that work will end up being done in Canada. Some may, and that's what I think they're announcing. Some may be done in Canada. But again, when you're making a big purchase like this, you could certainly do a lot better at negotiating the industrial benefits and the job benefits. And I know you used the example of Brazil, but I, I mean, I think it's safe to say, depending on where we would have these made and where something's manufactured, I mean, there's a reason why there are so many things that are made outside of Canada, and that reason often comes down to the cost and the cost that would be added to it, having it made in Canada or the or having it entirely made in Canada. I, I would imagine that that has to be some of the, or at least I would hope that that's some of the consideration that goes into this when we're talking about, what is it, $19 billion of tax taxpayer dollars. Well, well, absolutely. But what we're buying is, is I guess, if I can say it this way, the Cadillac of, of fighter jets. We're buying all kinds of capacity with the F-35s that we probably don't need, the stealth capacity and uh, some of the other aspects of, of, of that fighter jet. We could have bought a different jet. Uh, my personal favorite has always been the Saab Gripen for less money that better met the, the needs of Canadians. But at some point, we have to bite the bullet and buy fighter jets, right? We do need them for the defense of Canada. And so that's the only, I guess, note of happiness I've got today is that finally a decision has been made. But it could have been cheaper and could have had more Canadian jobs. Some of the defenders of this or, or some saying that this was a good move are suggesting or saying that, yes, Justin Trudeau said in 2015, this would never happen, this would be a nightmare, but saying that the world we're living in today in 2023 is a very different world from the one that we were living in in 2015. What do you say to that argument supporting this purchase? Well, I, I'm not disputing that we need fighter jets. And, you know, New Democrats have always argued that we ask people in the Canadian forces to do difficult and dangerous work on our behalf, and we need to properly equip them to do that work. And so I, I still stand by that policy, but... We could have had a different jet, and we could have had it sooner, and we could have had it cheaper. What does this do, if anything, then, to the support that the federal liberals depend on from you and from your party? Well, the purchase of fighter jets is not part of our agreement. It's not one of the, the critical planks of things we're looking for. We've been focused on things that are of uh, uh, urgent need for Canadians in terms of affordability and in terms of health care. And that's what our accord uh, is really centered around, is those um, urgent needs of ordinary Canadians. And so this won't have any impact on that. Right. But it still must be difficult in that this is a government that your party is supportive of, and this is a decision that clearly you and I'm thinking others in the, in the NDP aren't all that pleased with. Well, we're just saying they, that they could and should have done a much better job on behalf of Canadians. But in the end, we do have to purchase fighter jets. All right. Randall, thank you so much for making the time for joining us today to talk more about this. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks, John.
You might recall this announcement. It has to do with federal public servants, and they are being mandated to return to the office two to three days a week, and that is by March 31st. The federal government announcing last month that public servants will be required to work 40 to 60 percent of their regular schedule come spring. This was a news conference that was held. The president of the Treasury Board made that announcement, saying that change was coming in to create a more common approach when it comes to remote work, specifically for the federal public service. Well, that move has been met with some resistance, you could say. Many federal workers saying they don't want to return to the office, citing changes when it comes to their lifestyle, saying they can work just as well from home. The union that represents many of these workers saying they are going to fight this requirement that the decision has been made. But what does it mean for communities and for cities when people don't come back to the office. Well, joining us to talk a little bit more about that is Jeff Bray, Executive Director of the Downtown Victoria Business Improvement Association. Jeff, thank you so much for making some time for us today. My pleasure. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you. What what has it been like? Can you explain kind of the difference on a city specifically like Victoria when you have federal workers and even provincial workers, I would imagine as well, when people aren't coming into the office, maybe aren't coming to those places in the city itself, what does that do to businesses? Oh, absolutely. You know, your commercial business districts are a mix of, you know, residential uh, customers, tourism, uh, who produce customers, and those that come, you know, nine to five to work in all of that uh, office space. And, you know, that's really how your your downtown economy has evolved over the decades. So when all of a sudden one cohort of that uh, population, you know, disappears, uh, all of those restaurants, all of those coffee shops, uh, all of those retailers who rely on that kind of foot traffic are immediately impacted. Now, in the early days of the pandemic, there was federal relief, uh, provincial government relief that helped those businesses kind of ride through some of that. Uh, we saw you know, people get back to sort of the new normal, uh, venturing back out, uh, going to stores, restaurants, uh, nightclubs opening up, uh, tourism opening up. So, you know, two-thirds of that cohort's kind of returned back. The one group that has been, you know, somewhat uh, still uh, behind in terms of that has been office workers, and in particular, uh, public sector workers. Uh, And, you know, certainly everybody understands uh, why that evolved the way it did. But, you know, we're sort of two years on, and uh, certainly it's made it very challenging for some businesses who rely on those nine-to-five workers um, to keep their doors open and keep their staff working. So it, it, it was a huge impact. Uh, and certainly across Canada, uh, downtowns that did not have a residential component, you know, have, have really been devastated. Places like Victoria, where we have a good mix, have fared a little bit better. But certainly being a government town, we miss uh, our public sector neighbours coming back during the day. And you mentioned, too, at the time when this was happening with so many businesses, people working from home, a different time as well, like you said, with the government aid that was happening and with everybody to just kind of deal with this this whole new environment. But was the thought process always that, yes, we will get through this and at some point the workers will be back? 
Well, well, certainly. I mean, you, you know, I'm looking out my office right now at a bunch of office towers in, in downtown uh, Victoria that, uh, you know, taxpayers are paying for. So the expectation was at appropriate times with respect to the health directives, uh, people would re- be returning to work. It might look a little bit different. We may have some kind of hybrid model, but that's always been sort of the expectation. And certainly we've seen our private sector uh, offices, you know, return more or less to normal uh and you know it's been it's been more uh ad hoc with the provincial government and the federal government you know we have two large office buildings within our downtown that were essentially empty that uh, uh you know those are all potential customers you know and and while i can totally understand you know people who've been working from home not wanting to change you know a lot of people who are out in the workforce never have that option you know for everybody who went to the grocery store None of those individuals can work from home. The taxis that take people around, the bus drivers, they can't work from home. So, you know, there is uh, the expectation, I think, that we all participate in our economy. Uh, and I think, you know, hybrid models are, are absolutely realistic, uh, but certainly very important for the literally tens of thousands of jobs in our urban centers that rely on all of those customers. And is it also, it's not just, I would imagine, people that are in the, the downtown core that are, that are, say, spending money at restaurants and, uh, and p- contributing that way. It, there's also a different feel, isn't there, with the kind of the, the eyes on the street and the, the idea of a place being a, a busy, kind of vibrant place? Absolutely. And, you know, that is part of, you know, successful downtowns are diverse and inclusive and and have that kind of energy and that vitality, uh, which is one of the draws uh, for downtowns, whether it's a, uh, you know, a larger downtown like Victoria or Vancouver or, or, you know, a smaller downtown like Abbotsford or Chilliwack or Penticton, you know, that is the place where people come to meet. And so, you know, that lack of vibrancy or that reduction in vibrancy, you know, impacts the feel for everybody. Again, you know, this has been a pretty good year for Victoria. Tourism came back strong. It actually did in in 2021 as well. Um, But certainly, you know, we look forward to welcoming, um, you know, all of those uh, great employees uh, who are such great customers to our businesses, uh, you know, back. I know our members are eager to to welcome, you know, old friends and, and new customers back uh, to give the kind of service they have, you know, for decades here in Victoria. Is there a, a thing, a change, do you think, or the possibility that we're seeing the union really not pleased with this mandate of, of even a hybrid scenario where it's two to three days a week and we talk about housing so often as well i know this isn't something that could happen overnight but is there a potential for for changing specifically say government towns where instead of those office towers we convert it to housing and make it so maybe people do work from home but then there's more residents in the downtown core well you know i think it's 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 interesting i think there's a couple of things um and, you know, we, we, we could do, you know, several shows on the whole idea of, you know, uh, uh, performance management and, and efficiency in terms of customer service versus uh, the fact that I might be working at my nook table instead of coming into an office space. But I think longer term, I think what we're going to see is, you know, it's quite isolating to work from home. And, and, you know, how does a younger, newer person in either the public sector or private sector, how do they learn? How do they get mentored? How do they advance their careers if they're isolated, uh, there's no office culture, uh, there's no opportunity for those quick conversations that you learn about things. So I'm not sure longer term that this is going to necessarily always hold the way it is now. I think increasingly over 
months and a couple of years, uh, the lack of socialization, the lack of opportunities for, for growth uh, will actually have people wanting to go back for that communal experience. In terms of uh, any sort of vacant office space, I mean, if you've ever walked into a, an empty floor of an office building, I mean, it's designed for for one purpose, the, the likelihood of being able to take that and all of a sudden reconvert it all so that you've got plumbing and wiring and all sorts of hallways and things to, to convert into um, you know, um, suites and, and apartments in a place like Victoria is, is highly unlikely. Uh, you know, you might see that in very large urban centers like San Francisco, Seattle, uh, where they've had, you know, massive migration out of the, the central core. But I think Victoria, Vancouver, Burnaby, it's less likely um, that you're going to see that type of conversion because there's just not enough space to make it work. Um, but you will see, you know, people more likely working from home one or two days a week, uh, uh, and that would become more of the norm. What I think will be very interesting is before the pandemic, of course, one of the great trends was, you know, the shared workspace, the hot desk, um, and the idea that I don't necessarily need to have my own office with a name on it. I can just have a cubicle that I put my stuff on, work on, and then I clear it off at the end of the day. But, of course, what was the least pandemic-friendly type of workspace was shared work. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that concept comes back long-term or whether or not we actually see reconfigurations of office space to make them more not just pandemic-friendly, but in terms of the flu or anything else, uh, where people aren't going to want to share desk space so close with each other. So that, I think, will be an interesting trend to watch over the next couple of years. It will be, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jeff, do you think, will it be enough then if this does go ahead, this mandate that federal workers are back two to three days or 40 to 60% by, uh, I think it's March, end of March, that they that they want that fully implemented. Is that enough for the businesses that they're, they're not going to be back full time, but those days? Oh, I, I mean, I think, you know, certainly uh, in, in the, the shorter term, that would be a huge improvement, uh, be a great gain for, again, our businesses. And again, it's not just, re- I mean, it's, it's fitness studios, it's the dentist, it's the uh, massage therapist, you know, you name it, all of those downtown businesses that rely on that kind of foot traffic, it'll be, it'll be a very positive thing. Um, and I think what you will see longer term is perhaps, you know, more of a voluntary increase in that 40 to 60% as people get back to that routine, get back to their, you know, the social aspect of working and mentorship and, and those things. So I think it's a tremendous move. I can certainly understand, you know, the union's sort of position. But I think what the general public, I think, would say is, well, most of us are going to work every day, and most of us have the exact same issues of transportation and childcare um, that others have. And in in many cases, we never had the option to work from home. So um, I, I think, you know, it will be something that the union will work out with their employer. But I know for our businesses who, um, you know, love to see those workers uh, in their shops and in their restaurants, uh, they'll be delighted to welcome them back. All right. So, well, we'll definitely be watching to see what happens there. Jeff Bray, thank you so much for your time today. Great. Thanks very much. Have a great day.
Well, we started the show talking about this. The B.C. government saying it is waiving the upfront application and assessment fees for internationally educated nurses. The two fees typically costing more than $3,700. Those will now be covered directly by the province. And the premier saying earlier today, supporting nurses is key to the work to make health care accessible to all British Columbians. So how much of an impact will this have? Joining us now is Amon Graywall, the president of the BC Nurses Union. Amon, thank you so much for taking some time with us. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, great to have you back on the show. How big of a deal is this? You know, it's uh, significant in just hearing the numbers that uh, Minister Dix was speaking about, that there are already 2,000 nurses that are in the queue for uh, the process for uh, going through their licensing and credentialing. And he is saying within uh, four to nine months that we could have them in the workforce. So that's a significant amount of nurses to come into the system uh, in that short of time. So that will help ease a little bit of the um, burden that is on the nurses that uh, haven't had an opportunity to get breaks. And when he talks about the fact that those fees had to be paid by nurses, they could be reimbursed, but they still had to come up with those fees out of pocket first. How big of, or or do you hear from nurses that that is a big obstacle? Yes, because, you know, everybody right now is struggling with the cost of inflation going up, cost of food, uh, everything. And so how do you save? that kind of money especially if you're international and you're also paying for your housing etc it's you know a lot of money to save up to be able to also uh, try and uh, get into the system while you're still working so to have that money be paid up front instead of them having to save up that money will be a uh, big uh, bonus for them to be able to not have to pay it themselves And you mentioned that number as well of nurses who are currently in the queue. If this does work and gets more nurses that are able to go ahead and get this done because they don't have that huge expense up front, will it make a dent then, do you think, on staffing levels, on those shortages that we've seen for so long? Well, right now there are over 5,200 vacancies here in B.C., So if we are able to get that, I mean, that's a significant amount on top of nurses that are being uh, graduating. And so I am very optimistic that uh, this will uh, pan out and that we get those numbers coming through and uh, that uh, we can start seeing some relief in our healthcare sites. The announcement today also included uh, the uh, the eligibility. So nurses returning to practice will also be eligible and they will be able to access up to $10,000 in bursaries for that additional education that's required to return to practice. Is that a significant number as well, do you think? Well, I think those are included in those numbers. And uh, so if that is the case, Um, That is very good news to hear that that support is being provided to those nurses for whatever reason. You know, some may have been taking care of uh, their children and uh, have now decided that they want to come back into the workforce. And if you've been out of practice for over five years, you have to 
to some education again and now to be able to support them to be able to come back with these bursaries. That is uh, welcome news for any of our members that want to come back. How much do you think there also needs to be the focus on the the different types of nursing, whether it's a registered nurse, a, a licensed nurse, a nurse practitioner? Are we paying enough attention, do you think, on the specific types of nurses and those nursing positions that are so needed in the current healthcare system? Well, I think that more uh, needs to be done because right now the LPNs, Uh, that are working full scope and uh, some aren't working to their full scope. It all just depends on the different uh, health authorities as well as the uh, facilities. And um, also bridging for these LPNs to be able to go into RN positions. There aren't enough spaces for them to be able to uh, go to school. So if the focuses put back onto some of that, that would be uh, very welcome to see that happening. Right. And, and I know we've talked about that in the past and the number of nursing spots in the province or even in the country, really. How much does it really go back to that, though, and the need for more spaces? Definitely need more spaces. Just today, uh, talking to Cynthia from the College of Nurses, and she was saying that there are wait lists at the uh, schools. So we do need to uh, increase the seats so that there are less waitlists and uh, more people going to school. Do you know, are we seeing something similar when it comes to nursing? And we talked about this with uh, with doctors as well, that we're seeing doctors going to other countries, whether it's Ireland or other countries, becoming doctors there, realizing that, that it's not easy to come back to Canada to get a residency or to, to continue their career. So they're ending up working elsewhere. Are, are we seeing that with nurses as well? I really haven't heard of that. Uh, I mean, what we usually hear of is that there are nurses that have trained elsewhere and that they want to come here, but they are facing all these challenges. One of the nurses that was uh, at the press conference today, she worked in the Philippines. She worked in Saudi Arabia. She worked in uh, New Zealand and had challenges. She said the hardest place to work was here in B.C. to get into the system. So it's uh, important to make sure that uh, it's a smooth transition and doesn't take as long as it has been. Uh, This is happening as well. The announcement made today, just days after we found out that the province is reactivating the emergency conditions at 20 hospitals in BC. We've heard about the need for surge beds and the capacity. What is that doing to nurses that are currently working in the system as far as their workload and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis? Well, you know, with the opening of these uh, emergency operations centres, um, that's more so about the flow, access and flow of uh, the usage of beds in the hospitals. And where uh, has an impact on our nurses is that it's going to take them away from the patient and the time that they spend with the patient to be updating their managers and whatever whiteboards, et cetera, that they need to update. So it's going to add more pressure on the nurses um, and patients are going to get discharged, but where are they going to be discharged to and what supports are put in place for wherever they're being discharged to. If they're being discharged home 
do they have a care provider or is there home supports that are going to be available to them? Right, which I think is a big question or certainly top Mm -hmm. of mind for a lot of people. Um, One of the other concerns that came from today's announcement was was talking about nurses who maybe are trained in other countries and maybe want to come to BC or or don't. Is there a concern with instead of graduating more nurses, having more spaces to train nurses here? Is there a concern about taking nurses from other countries? Um, I don't know whether it's... uh, this has been forever, ever since, I mean, I've been nursing. There's been nurses moving about globally, and uh, everybody is vying for nurses from uh, all different areas of the world. And I think it's more so that uh, the nurses who are wanting to work here and making the efforts to come and work here. Right. And, and it does seem like that that's a lifestyle. And even I would imagine some people going into the field of nursing, one of the draws is that it's it's a job, it's a career with skills that, that you can travel with and you you could mm-hmm. go and, and go and, and try in different countries. Right. Yeah. So you could work anywhere in the world. You can work on a cruise ship. Uh, you could work, you know, um, there's nurses that work, as I said, one of the nurses that was at the press conference, she worked in the Philippines and then she worked in Saudi Arabia and then she worked in New Zealand. Now she's in Canada. It's uh, an opportunity that uh, they have that flexibility and leisure of being able to work where they choose that they want to work. And Amon, I, I wanted to ask you as well, I think we, we talk about this uh, every time you come on the show as far as uh, the workplace safety, uh, the changes that were made or the hiring of more security to keep nurses safe. How are things going as far as how nurses are feeling w- when it comes to their security on the job right now? Well, I was just having a conversation with a nurse last evening, and that was one of the questions that we were asking was, where are we in that process right now? I think they were uh, still in the hiring and training process. So that is something that I'm going to look into to see where we're at with that process right now, because I do not believe, as far as I know, that uh, they have been integrated into the system yet. And is is that concerning, given that it was a while ago that we heard that announcement or that commitment to make workplaces safer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it is absolutely concerning anytime there's any violent incident at any of our facilities. Uh, top of mind is the concern for their safety and to make sure that promises made are kept. But I do recall that they had said it would take a few months for them to get uh, this started. So, um I would say now is the time, New Year, and uh, see what progress has been made. All right. Amon Graywall, as usual, thank you so much for coming on and appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I mentioned this earlier, and it's a story out of East Vancouver where a couple says they have been the victims of targeted harassment and damage to their property for weeks now. Shannon and Innes told Global News that they've had to replace 11 tires on two different vehicles. They've been slashed in six separate incidents. We have agreed not to use their last names for security reasons, but joining me to talk more about what is happening is Shannon. Shannon, thank you so much for taking the time today. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I, I know you talked to Global News about this and showed some of the security footage and what you know at this point, but take us back to when this started happening in October and how did this unfold? Yeah, uh, it was the uh, very beginning of October. It was just a random, like, husband was leaving one morning, came back a few minutes later, thought his tire was flat. Uh, then I had to leave shortly afterwards with the kids. Same thing happened to me halfway down the alley. And once we got a closer look, we were like, oh, there's like puncture marks in our tires. Um, so we just assumed it was like, you know, an alley spree and thought we'd, you know, we probably just got, everyone got hit last night. And then we took a good walk up and down our alley and a block over here and a block over there. And it was just us. Um, and so we just thought, you know, that's, that's weird. <laughs> and then it happened again a few days later uh, and ended up happening four times in 20 days in October. Um, and then we stopped. I mean, by that time, we got some cameras up. We got some signage up. Uh, we hadn't heard anything from the police at that point, even though we had reported it every time. Um, and then we started just parking our cars elsewhere in the neighborhood. And then it got really kind of unsettling when we hadn't parked there for seven weeks. And then one night, I just forgot to move my car before I went to bed, before I fell asleep. Um, and the one night, it was there for the first time in seven weeks. He slashed my tires that night. So we were like, okay, there's like someone watching our house. It just felt really, really unsettling. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't even imagine the, the, what, a, what that must have felt like leading up to that. And then, like you said, putting your car or leaving your car there, your vehicle there just for one night. Uh, I, I noticed that you do, yeah. like you said, you, you started setting up cameras and, and trying to figure out what was going on. What, did, what were you able to learn by setting up those surveillance cameras? Yeah, um, it's it's definitely the same person every time. Like he he's usually wearing the same thing. He does it in the same manner. He always comes from the same direction and leaves in the same direction. It's always kind of in the same block of time in the middle of the night, usually between like one thirty and 4 in the morning. Um, and then, I mean, since that last incident on December 18th, we, of course, are still parking elsewhere. And then just a couple nights ago, I don't know if he's out looking for our vehicles or just happened upon it or something, but he, he found uh, one of our vehicles out in the neighborhood and slashed our tires again a couple nights ago. So we're like, now, where do, where do we park? He's, he's going out and finding us even when we're not parked at home. So. And when you've seen this person on the surveillance video, do, do you recognize this person or, or, or have any idea who this is? We have absolutely no idea. Like, it's, um, he doesn't appear young. He appears like he's probably in his, like, maybe 40 to 60 kind of range. Uh, he usually has his hood up. Um, he's had a mask, like, COVID mask um, on. So it's it's really hard to distinguish what he looks like. Uh, and, of course, it's like it's nighttime and it's raining. And it's like, so we can't get a clear image of him. And, yeah. And I'm sure you've been asked this and you've probably been racking your brain trying to think of something too, but is there something, anything that you can think of as to why somebody would have it in their mind, why they would be targeting you for this? Yeah, no, I mean, it's the first question everyone asks. And of course us too, we're like, what did we do? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we just, we're, we're very like, nice and boring people <laughs> we've lived in our neighborhood for like over 20 years we've lived in this house for 13 years we don't have any issues with any of our neighbors 
uh, we like we don't have any just like interpersonal or familial uh, things going on. We we own a small business, but we've like we've been working with the same people for over twenty years. Like there's a lot of love for our very small struggling business. <laughs> um, like we just cannot figure it out. And we're like, is it mistaken identity or something? Like it's strange and and very disconcerting. Yeah, and I was going to ask that as well. Do, do you, is it possible? I mean, you have the, the same vehicles, maybe as somebody else who has angered somebody, and and they think that that you and Innes are somebody else. Yeah, I mean, at this point, like it, the most kind of bananas scenarios we're coming up with they're all as strange as the next we're like i don't know maybe <laughs> like maybe they think for someone else maybe it's just some like really deranged person who's like fixated on just us which is super unsettling um you know and we've got we have four kids we have like teenagers that come and go or like it's it's very, very uncomfortable. <laughs> How much has it cost you at this point to replace and fix the tires? Um, we're over 3,000 in tires now. We have we have three tires we haven't been able to replace yet, like the last two just from the other night, um, and then mine from December 18th, the one before that. Um, so once we get those, we'll be up to like 3,600 or 3,900. <laughs> I don't know. It's 11 tires times 300, uh, so 3,300. And then, you know, at least five, six, seven hundred 700 bucks and like, cameras and floodlights and sensor lights and the paying for the apps for the cameras and it's just it's really overwhelming have you gone to police yeah like we've we filed police reports every time um we didn't really get any it was the fifth time when i had like uh just forgot my vehicle there that one night that it happened and i was i was really freaked out so when i called non-emerge i was pretty noisy about it. I was really emotional. It was like, someone has to help us. <laughs> like, this isn't just like random, like East End property crime spree, like shocker. Like it wasn't, it's not that it's something else. And I need to talk to someone. Um, so we did, the cops came out that day and they spent probably an hour here. They were very helpful, really kind. Um, like it's obvious they want, they want to help us. Um, we feel like we're, you know, we kind of fall on a, on the scale of, priority there's obviously a lot kind of bigger things going on that require a lot of attention and we understand that um but we're just like how how do we make a little more noise to get a little more resources kind of pushed our way or or something or maybe just someone watches the video and is like hey that gate's familiar i don't know anything right did the police yeah. give you any indication or, or any kind of theory on what they thought might be happening no no, I mean, they they have all confirmed that they think it is also really, really weird. They're like, this is not what we usually see. It's usually all the tires up the block or it is a very like targeted for a reason. You know, you piss someone off and here's your retaliation. And even then, though, it's like once or twice. It's not 11 tires. <laughs> so, yeah, no, they haven't. They've just basically told us like what to do from a from a like deterrent level and we're done all of that so we just feel pretty stuck <laughs> yeah like you said you've spent all of this money on cameras and lights and parking in different areas uh, not near your house and even that's not enough that that's keeping you completely safe yeah like that's not working now so now we're like okay we can't you know it's vancouver we can't like afford to 
get parking spots in a parkade somewhere for each of us or something, you know, and like we have, we have kids and it's, it really sucks. Like having to park far away and then walk back home with the kids. And, um, so now we're, yeah, we're, we're not sure what to do, honestly. Hmm. And I would imagine, like you said, you get along with your neighbors. You've lived in this neighborhood for quite some time. What do the neighbors yeah. make of it? Uh, they're, I mean, they're pretty concerned too. We've, we've definitely like, you know, after the, I don't know, the third, fourth time, like I printed up things or I went around to like the entire block and talked to lots of the neighbors, left little notes being like, do you have cameras? Do you have any ideas? Like everyone seems pretty eager to help and is concerned for us. And the signs we put up were like, sorry, neighbors, like we have to record activity here. Like, um, yeah, there. And, and I mean, I've lived on commercial drive for over 20 years. I've I was a single parent for the first eight years of that, like young myself, young kids. Like I've never felt unsafe here before. So this is, you know, this is not good. (laughs) No, no, not good at all. And like you said, uh, the kind of putting it out there, putting the video out there, which is uh, on our website in the the global news story, in case somebody might recognize, maybe they've heard somebody bragging about this or or somebody knows who this person is. I I would imagine though, and I'm sure there are people listening to you right now who would have some creative ideas on on what they Mm -hmm. might do. Uh, Have Mm -hmm. you ever thought of, uh, you know, sitting outside for the night and losing a night's (laughs) sleep to try and catch this person in the act yeah i mean we're obviously like we're super there my husband's a big guy he's got a lot of friends there like we're we're there we're we're at that place we're like okay well there what else do we do but of course like i you know that's that's risky i don't want my husband or anybody out like playing with the man with the knife in the alley like that's not our job (laughs) um i i really don't want to do that but we're you know, we don't know what else to do. So, yes, of course, we're getting tons of suggestions about baseball bats and, you know, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but we're, I don't know. Yeah. Which, which, and I think, you know, anybody listening to this, well, in some cases that might seem like an extreme response. I mean, what else do you do at this point if, if this person is relentless and, and they're tracking down your vehicle? Yeah. I mean, what what we want ideally is we would like, police officers to sit outside for a couple nights and have them do that uh, because they can do that safely. Um, and honestly, like anytime we, it, he, he hits very quickly. Like we don't think that this is like, I'm not a police officer. I don't know, but I'm like, I don't think this is like a three week sting operation. I think this is like, we'll put our vehicles there and I guarantee you in two nights he'll be there. Right. So if you're sitting out there with like not unmarked vehicles, cause we all know what those look like. We're talking like bait vehicles, in our vehicle, whatever, um, and just just get this guy. To, we just need to stop. Yeah, no, and I, I think anybody, anybody who's had their car broken into or had the window smashed even once knows how, what a violating feeling that is and how, what an inconvenience and how expensive it is. So to hear what's been happening to you, I, I think uh, people would agree that uh, you need to find some, you need to find this guy. Yeah, we just, we just need it to stop and we're really hopeful that, the VPD can help us out with that. And we're really thankful for, for what they've done so far. And um, we're just, just crossing our fingers and trying to figure out every night where to leave our cars. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and so at this point, I know it was only a, a day ago, but since the global story ran, have you heard from anybody or has there been any update? Uh, 
We we did hear back from, we've had one police officer that we had contact with and he's not on shift right now. Um, so the person that is on shift contacted us today um, and he came by. Um, he, again, like super kind, seems very, very willing to help. He said he's been with the BPD for 19 years. He's like, I'm not, I'm not afraid to push and ask the questions and try and get you guys what you need. So like, trust me, we're, we're, we want to help out here. So yeah, and obviously I'm not I'm not privy to what most of that looks like. Sure. So we're just kind of going, uh, okay, let us know. Like we don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, Shannon, I hope that by putting this out there, maybe somebody knows something, and hopefully this will help bring this to an end. And uh, if there is an update, let us know. But thanks so much for sharing this with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it.